Zito from seventh to first in the final event. You are a champion. And Oleksiak has done it! The girl from the six has got six Olympic medals. The substitute for Canada just about gets it through. It's a glory gold for Canada. Kathy Lifting goes up to Graham, takes the lead, looks a winner, draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming your way today for another interview episode. We are returning to the great sport of rowing by speaking to Canadian two-time Olympic rower and Olympic gold medalist Suzanne Granger. And so big is this interview that I'm not even doing it by myself because I've got an actual Canadian on the line that isn't an Olympian. Colin Holding. I'm just calling you something different today. Hello, Colin Holding. <laughs> How are you today? I'm doing great, Ben Waterworth. Wow. There you go. That's the nicest way of uh, calling my name there. Thank you so much for that. Uh, this is a great chat, learning a lot about Suzanne's career, her journey right up into two different Olympics learning about how she got into the sport a unique way right through to one of the funnest answers I've ever gotten that's really gotten me so excited uh, for (laughs) something to do after this interview. Uh, Colin, did you enjoy this chat? Yeah, you know, this is a sport that here in Canada, it's it's very similar to cycling. Uh, We know we're always going to meddle in something in rowing, but what we're going to meddle in is the question. And uh, I I don't even remember if it came up during this interview, but I mean, kind of the historic thing is the the women's eight. It's the first time in, I think, 30 years that Canada had actually meddled. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we're looking at longer, almost as long as, maybe the, just as long as Suzanne's been alive. I mean, <laughs> she was probably a baby the last time that uh, that we meddled. So it was a very big deal back in Tokyo when this happened. So it's, it's, it's exciting to be able to talk about it. 29 years since, uh, yeah, the, the gold in, in Barcelona, that's a city, Ben, mm-hmm. uh, that the eights, uh, it was 25 years since, uh, a women's, uh, gold medal had been won in rowing and 13 years wow. since any gold medal for Canada in rowing. So, uh, all those stats out there. Of course, we spoke to Sydney Payne recently, a, a teammate of Suzanne's in this boat, and uh, great to now get Suzanne's perspective of that uh, great gold medal win in the women's eights for Canada in Tokyo. That means so we're 25% done that boat. We are. Exactly. Look at you with the math. That's you've, the you've goal. Been practicing. That is the goal. <laughs> well done. Uh, we're going to hear this right now. Our chat with two-time Canadian Olympic rower and Olympic gold medalist Suzanne Granger. <laughs> weeks back we spoke to a member of the canadian women's eight team sydney Payne. we learned a lot about her journey in the sport of rowing and the lead up to the gold medal win in tokyo by the women's eight crew from canada and today we're here to talk a little bit more about that historic moment with another member of that same crew she's a two-time olympian competed in rio as well and has a gold medal to show for her amazing achievements throughout her great rowing career it is a pleasure to welcome to off the podium the one the only suzanne granger suzanne first of all welcome to the show it's a pleasure to have you on off the podium today thank you thank you for having me it's always exciting to talk about rowing. I love the sport. It's always very entertaining and great to watch. Uh, and we always love to find out how you get involved in the sport. So uh, how, how do you get involved in, in rowing? Um, I think I am a little bit of an anomaly. There's 
you can get involved in rowing pretty late. Um, but I actually started when I was 12. Um, I first started rowing when my family moved back to Canada. I'm Canadian, but I grew up in Florida. Um, so I was 12 years old and angsty. And of course my parents were ruining my life by pulling away from me, pulling me away from my friends in Florida. Uh, and so I didn't learn this till recently, but they reached out to one of their family friends who was the coach of the university rowing team in our town and said, you got to help us. She needs some kind of extracurricular, just something to, so that she can focus this angst on. Um, and so he came over for dinner one night and said, Hey, you're really tall. You want to try rowing? I was like, what's rowing? I don't know what that is. I'm not going to do that. That's dumb. Um, but I was convinced and I went out to the lake with my dad and Bob, my coach um, in London, Ontario. And he taught me how to use the rowing machine and put me out in one of those massive tub singles, essentially a canoe with riggers on it. And uh, 18 years later, I was you still are. doing it. Wow. And was it something you you immediately took to, or did you still have a little bit of that that angst with you? It's like, no, 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 I'm too cool for this. I don't want to do this. Or was it immediately in love with the, the rowing? Actually, yeah, I was immediately in love with rowing. I think it was the only sport that, that had ever happened for me in. I'm 6'2", and so I heard all throughout you know, my childhood, because I've been this height since I was about 12, um, that, oh, you must be great at basketball and volleyball, like, oh you could be awesome at soccer. And we tried every sport. I played tennis, we swam, and I was just horrible at all of them. And the work that I put in didn't seem to bring anything out on the other side. I never saw progress. And so whether I actually was good at rowing or the coach made me think I was, um, I give him props for making me feel like I was progressing when I put the hard work in and making me feel like I had potential that I was actually living up to. And so I think I stuck with it because I immediately felt like I was able to succeed in it. So in trying all those different tall person sports, was this a case mm -hmm. of you wanting to become a professional athlete or was this just the parents going, oh my God, she's terrible. Just give her any sport, any sport. Just, you know, put her out there. We need to get this angst going and kind of always against your will. <laughs> uh, no, I think, I, well, I never dreamed of being a professional athlete. I uh, actually wanted to, at one point, be a dermatologist and then at one point I wanted to be a pop singer of all you know childhood dreams of being famous <clears throat> but um I think our my parents just really liked keeping us active I started playing soccer first when I was six and living in Florida we swam before we could speak so I think they just were searching for something that I liked so that taking me to a basketball or soccer practice wasn't a horrible experience for them as well. And, and when you start getting into rowing, you mentioned you had a coach there. Was the coach there right away? Like were your parents setting up, okay, this is something we want to take seriously or did the coaching come later? Um, I think the coaching kind of happened immediately. I honestly don't know if when they reached out to this family friend, if they had any idea that I would be any good at rowing or if it would stick. I think they're honestly just looking for me to find sort of a fast group of friends and an extracurricular to keep me busy. Um, but my parents had known Bob since before they were married. And so he was sort of a natural person for us to hang out and spend time with. And one of the most kind-hearted people I know. And so I think when he was asked to help out, he was like, heck yeah, like I'll, you know, step in. I'm coaching rowing anyways, just 
join in. So he was coaching the high school team as well at that time. And I was in grade eight. And so I just joined the high school practices after school. And uh, I think he saw the potential in me before anybody else did. Um, and I mean, I wasn't amazing, but I think he saw that I could go somewhere with it. And it really wasn't until grade 12 that I had any idea I could do anything with rowing after high school. Um, it was a coach from a university in the States actually reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, we've seen you at these, uh, indoor rowing championships competitions. They're the only thing that you really see like times posted online for that are comparable across the board. Um, can we come and see you row? And at that point I was sort of like, Oh, wow, this is new. I didn't realize that I could actually do anything with it. And so it really didn't spark into something bigger than just an extracurricular until I was in grade 12. On that though, just on the Olympic side of things, had you grown up watching the Olympics, uh, you know, loving the Olympics and uh, did any time you sort of watch it, you think like, wow, this would be cool. This might be all right one day if, uh, you know, if I was good enough to try and go to one day. I definitely loved watching the Olympics. I, uh, one of my really close friends I met rowing in high school and I can so clearly remember staying up and watching rowing at the 2008 Olympics because it was on in the middle of the night and we stayed up till 2 a.m. or something to watch the women's eight race because we trained out of the same boathouse that they did in London at that time and seeing them on TV having sort of seen them row on the lake that we rode on was really inspiring for me and I always dreamed of being able to go to the Olympics, but had no idea what the path to get there was and didn't ever think it was a serious possibility. So from my start of rowing in high school and being told I was good at it, I was always like, oh, it'd be awesome to be able to take this all the way to the top and go to the Olympics. But I never really thought it was a real possibility. When you're going through all the time in high school, when you're on teams and everything, I mean, do you try out, okay, rowing by yourself, rowing in twos, four, you know, up to eights or whatever? Um, is it something that's assigned? Is it something that's based on your interest, what you, which boat you actually want to row in? Uh, with the high school I went to, I think it was very much decided just based on how many people were actually on the rowing team. So when I was in grade nine, we had enough women to make an eight, uh, and that was the only time. And so we tried it because it's fun to row a big boat. Um, and then after that, it was really just me and my close friend. And so I rode the single um, and I rode a double with her for pretty much the rest of my high school career. At one point for like a hot second, we rode in a quad, uh, but it was really dictated by the number of people on the team. Um, it was cool to try out rowing in a single and rowing in the um, double but it's interesting. I never actually really swept. So like with one using one or until I got to university, um, except for that grade nine, eight moment. Um, but yeah, I think we just didn't have many people. So we didn't have the opportunity to try many different size boats or probably the facilities to do so either. When you're in the boat like that, like, is there, is there a certain position that you get assigned to? Do you have a certain position that that's preferred? Like, cause I, I, the one thing I don't quite understand is, okay, this person goes to the front, this person goes to the back. Is there any differences in the positions in the middle? Um, in a big boat, in my experience, there are definitely 
people sit in certain seats depending on what their strengths are. And you can have more than one strength and be good in more than one seat. And so in an eight, the people who sit in what we call the front of the boat, the stern, um, eight and seven are really rhythmic. And so they sort of set the rhythm for the boat. Um, and a lot of this is just learned through watching people row and rowing together. Um, and then uh, six, five, four, three, it's called the powerhouse. It's the middle of the boat. And you put your really strong, really fit athletes in the middle. Um, and I typically sat in six or five uh, and then two and one in bow are very technical because in an eight, the people at the very back of the boat actually have a lot of, um, it's very big ability to be able to change what the boat feels like. And so, yes, depending on where you sit in the boat really depends on your strengths. But, uh, after 18 years of rowing, I've actually sat in every single seat of the eight on both sides. <laughs> so I've, I've tried it all. <laughs> I, I loved hearing from Sydney about just that feeling of being in an eights boat, particularly for that first time, because <laughs> Realistically, there's not a sport that I can think of that is like the eights in rowing. And the fact that you have eight of you in a small enclosed space going in a straight line, you know, you've got four in a bobsleigh, you know, there's other ones where there's, you know, maybe two or four, but eight in one boat is insane. Like, can you describe that first time you got in an eights boat and just sort of like, wow, this is, this is something completely different to when I'm in a, in a single, a double or a quad. Yeah, it's definitely a big change. I remember the first time in grade nine, sitting in that eight, having gone from a double or even a single, even if you're not a fast eight, going from a change in size of boat like that, you feel the speed difference. And I remember the first time we took off all eight in the eight when I was in grade nine, I thought, wow, we are just flying on top of this water right now. It's sort of this feeling of like almost floating in air when you sort of all get rowing together at just the right pace and speed and technique all matches up it's pretty unreal um to sort of feel that like smooth buttery stroke as funny as it sounds and also having someone yell at you um which i guess you don't really get in a forte the coxswain screaming at you right that's something you're probably going to get used to <laughs> yeah it's true in the, in the small boats one of the rowers does it so typically in the um in the double my friend uh sitting i stroked and so if she sat behind me she would make the calls but in a small boat like that, it's usually a lot quieter of a race because you're also rowing and so you sort of have to save your breath. Um, so when you move into an eight and you have somebody who's able to sort of talk to you the entire time, it's, uh, it's definitely a much louder race. I think that's one really unique thing about sitting at the start line for an eights race or even watching at the start line of an eights race is when you look across and you see the, just the number of people that are sitting at that start line in the boats, and it's dead silent before the race happens. And those are the longest minutes of my life before the buzzer goes off and you get to row. And it goes from that dead silent, like abyss to so loud because you have six coxswains all yelling. In some countries, the athletes even chant and cheer off the start. And so it's a very change, a huge change in sound. Um, so it's quite unique because you don't really get that in smaller boats races just because of the having to not waste your breath when you're rowing and making the calls as well. 
one of the things I've never actually um, really thought about too much, and certainly haven't asked Ben, you may have asked this to Sydney before, but uh, the changes in, in the water and, and small variations, wind and stuff like that. Like, cause here in Winnipeg, we have a rowing club that uh, I used to run by every single weekend. And you'd see people out there first thing in the morning, cause that's when it's going to be calm and everything, but it's kind of a unique sport, almost like skiing where it's like, you could have an identical distance, but it's going to be different, you know, no matter where you are in the world, everything's different. Uh, what what types of, um, I guess, decisions have to be made, whether it be in practice or in competition, for when you're able to row? Does it have to be like a wind at a certain speed? Um, interesting, yeah. So for the most part, we kind of just go with the flow. Um, a lot of the levels of where they'll cut off racing depends on where you are. Um, so for example, in Amsterdam, uh, we row on a man-made course that's 2K plus 50 meters long. And that's like the length of our race and then a hard stop when you cross the finish line. Uh, and that race course, because of, I guess, the depth of the water and its positioning with the prevailing wind, it picks up to an unrowable state very quickly. Whereas if we row in... London, Ontario on Fanshawe, there were actually days where we could row and it was gusting up to 60 kilometers an hour because of the protection along the side of the lake. And so it's really based on where you're rowing, um, which is unfortunate because sometimes on race courses, it's the call to either cancel racing or delay is almost made one race too late because you have to wait to see how it's affecting boats before you can actually decide to make a change. What is the scene like in, in London? I mean, I sort of was talking to you off air. Uh, you know, I lived in Victoria. I know there's a big rowing scene sort of uh, in, in BC in that part of the country. But is London sort of the hotbed for the east coast of, of Canada and sort of a lot of east coast rowers go to, to London? I think it was at one point until 2017. It was where the women were centralized for the national team. And so if you wanted to join the national team under 23s, um, or even sort of want a chance to go further in rowing, that was where you had to be. Um, I would say that the main facility in London now is probably St. Catharines. Um, they've recently put up a new boathouse. And so it's much nicer. But when I was in London, it seemed like that was the place to be. Uh, the lake is fairly large for rowing um, and you could row pretty much all the time because of the shape of it and how you could get protection from the wind. And I think the national team being there was really the main pull. Um, nowadays, I think it's a bit quieter on Lake Fanshawe. Uh, Western still rows there and a lot of high school rowing happens there as well. But the transition of the national team into Victoria, I think did quiet the lake a bit. Um, but to my understanding, if you're gonna row, it would either be London or St. Catharines. Whether it be in practice or competition, again, do you have one time where, let's say it's not a race where there's no decision to call it and your coach just says, okay, I know it's gusting to 60 kilometers out there and it's minus two right now, but you guys are rowing. Has that ever happened? Oh, yeah. We actually, when we lived in, when I lived in London and trained on Lake Fanshawe, our cutoff during the winter was negative 10 Celsius. Wow. So we would, <laughs> if it wasn't, you know, super windy and we couldn't row we would row until it was minus 10 um and the 
if boat or water got into the boat, the slides would actually freeze. And so you'd have to take a moment to stop and scrape the ice out so that you could actually go up and down your slide. And so I've definitely experienced some uh, interesting weather and yes, it really is up to the coach to make that call. Like, okay, it's too cold or, you know, it's, it's really windy and this is going to suck, but we're going to do it anyways, because it's good practice. And when we rode on Fanshawe, it was actually really, it sucked, but it was good that we went out and rode when it was that windy. Um, because we knew that Rio in 2016 was expected to be very, very choppy. Uh, I guess the, where the lake that we rode on, um, its prevailing wind was a crosswind and it picked up really fast at 6 a.m. It was already white capping and they just ran races anyways. There's only one day that they actually canceled races for the first time in years of uh, Olympic rowing history. So we usually try to push through the elements if we can, because on race day, you never really know what could happen or when they'll decide to call it if it, the weather does go sour. I love hearing that, scraping the ice off, getting up in the morning, you scrape that off your car, <laughs> yeah. do that on your on your rowboat as well. Oh, so yeah. in, the lead, in the lead up to Rio, um, you had a very interesting period, 2011, 2012, making your international debut. You win a gold in the under-23 world championships in the women's eight. You do it again in 2012, but in between hand, uh, you're diagnosed with hypothyroid disorder. Now, can you explain a little bit to us about this, sort of what happened and what sort of uh, that prevented you from maybe doing a little bit there with rowing? Yeah, I remember it was in my second year of university. I felt crazy tired all the time and would do like a normal rowing practice and I'd come back and I would sleep for hours on end and my body would be sore and achy and I'd miss classes, sleep through my alarms. And um, when the doctor told me I had hypothyroid, I was actually really scared because there was another girl on the team uh, in my university who was diagnosed with this and never fully got back to her normal. Um, and so that was my only understanding of it. And I was worried. I was like, Oh, this is the end. Like, what am I going to do? Um, and so when I went and talked to the doctor about it, um, they sort of pushed away my, like my worries and said, Hey, no, it's okay. This is actually something that's super treatable you know, it's annoying for a period of time because we have to figure out what dose of replacement medication for your thyroid works for you. And, um, and so it will take some time. And so given that it's a medication that I take every morning that builds in your system, it's not like the first day I took it, I was ready to go and I was okay. Um, I had to be patient. Uh, and when I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism, I was also uh, tested for low iron. Um, and I wasn't anemic, but my iron was eight and it should sit around 75 for a, a woman in of that age. Wow. Um, and so at that point you should be anemic. Um, but I guess that was also when I learned that I had insane physiology for sport and that my hemoglobin levels were higher than that of a normal average healthy person, even when I had almost no iron in my system. And so there were some positives that came out of being crazy crashed in my system but I would say it took about a couple of weeks for me to kind of get back to normal. Um, and it's been something that I've had to be aware of and manage even to, to today in my rowing career, because when you're pushing your body to its extreme limits, you can feel the slightest change in anything that's going on. And so I could tell during a practice that we did, if it was time to retest my blood and change my medication dose, I could feel the change in my body and, I remember a doctor being like, well, you know, we just changed it. So like, I don't think that it would happen yet. And I was like, no, I can feel it. Like, I know it's time to up my dose. 
Um, and you know, we tested my, my blood and all that and numbers came back that I was right. And so it's been something that I've had to manage and took me out of the boat for a couple of weeks, but because I was patient with it, it, uh, didn't affect me long-term and I've been able to get back to my normal and sort of learn a new way to pay attention to my body. Is there always that fear as an athlete then when you've got a situation like that and you're having to go on medication of what's in that medication? Because we've seen many athletes over the years, uh, you know, fail drug tests for things that aren't really performance enhancing, but there just happens to be an ingredient in a simple piece of medicine that is banned and therefore it kind of works against them. Yeah, I think there's definitely always that question. And a lot of that is is on the athlete to ask you know, is this okay? Is this something that I need a TUE for? So like a permission slip to take when you're competing. Um, and luckily I've always had a really great circle of support around me and people that I could ask and that I could trust. And so when I went on the medication, um, at that point I hadn't joined the senior team yet, um, and was going back to join the U23 team. And so I did ask the question, but I was fairly new to drug testing for the, on the international level at this point, they drug tested me at my university in um, the States. It was something they did for the NCAA rules, but it's not as intense um, and it's really just for the university. So I was definitely aware of it and asked questions. Luckily I do come from quite a medical family. My grandfather is an orthopedic surgeon and my dad's a veterinarian. And so I grew up, you know, learning more about the medications that we were taking and always asked questions as a kid. So I did worry, but I think I've been lucky enough to have people around me that I trust to ask those questions. And I know that it's on me to vouch for myself and say like, is this okay? Do I need to double check that I can take this? It's still crazy for me to think that you were performing before that diagnosis too. Cause my, my sister had hypothyroidism and I mean, like the fatigue, I couldn't imagine her glancing at a rolling machine and not wanting to fall asleep, <laughs> let alone actually being able to compete. That's insane. Uh, when you make that decision, so this is, I'm guessing, post you, you know, receiving the medication, as you're saying to, uh, to kind of go for the national team, for the senior team. Um, mm-hmm. What does the process look like between there and Rio? Like uh, when we look at a hockey team or a rugby team or something like that, I mean, I'm going to imagine there's, you know, a trial process, uh, maybe it lasts for seven days. What's the, the process like to be able to narrow it down to only eight people that they want to send yeah. to, in this case, Rio? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure how it works in other sports, but I know one thing that's unique about rowing is the sort of hub where they bring all the athletes into train at the National Training Center. Um, is what will eventually become the Olympic team. And so at, until we become the Olympic team, we're competing against each other every single day. Um, and so when I left under 23s in 2012, or I guess aged out of it, I went back to university for one more year. And when I graduated, I joined the senior team. Um, and it sort of just worked out well timing wise that when I graduated university, I was the aged out of U23s and it was time to join the senior team. Because of my success in the under 23-8 and the under 23-4, I was invited to come train at the National Training Center in London, Ontario. And so the first step is receiving that invite from the NTC to say, hey, come join this group of people that we will eventually draw the Olympic team from. And so in 2013, I joined the senior team. And then every year we have our international 
sort of racing season. And rowing doesn't actually have that many opportunities to compete internationally. There's the World Cup circuit, which is three races or three regattas, and then world champs. And so you can go to four regattas in a year, really, that are international. Um, and I we don't usually go to World Cup one or two. We pick one or the other usually because they're really small or too close together. And for travel purpose, we usually only pick one. And so I actually seat raced at that point to make the international travel team for that racing season. And so in 2013, I made the women's eight and was able to go to Europe and race world cup three. Uh, and then if the team does well, they don't usually reseat race before world champs. Um, and so, but if, you know, we came second, we think there's a chance to come first, then we will reseat race everything and remake all of the boats in like the month period between world cup three and world champs. And so every year you kind of seat race to make an international team, but in not making that team, you don't necessarily get kicked off the training center squad. And so once you've been invited to train at the training center, if you remain at a certain level of like, if you're good enough to stay, I suppose you keep mm -hmm. working hard and having seen progress, um, then you can stay and have that opportunity to make an international racing team. Um, and so then the same thing kind of happens in the pre-Olympic year, um, you or before the Olympics, you seat race and it's, like going to any other international regatta, it just has that crazy title of Olympics in front of it. Basically, more consistent you are, keep performing up to that standard, which, I mean, you, you did all right. Your first World Cup race, you win a bronze. <laughs> uh, you get a bronze, couple of bronzes and a silver in the World Championships in the in the eight leading into Rio. Do you, do you remember that feeling when sort of you got the nod, you were going to, to Rio based on that consistency and that performance that you'd had in that period in the lead up to 2016? Yeah, I do actually. I can remember sort of the first moment that I realized that it was it was happening um, because when I was in under 23s and even sort of the tail end of high school or of university, when I realized that I had this opportunity to potentially go to the Olympics, I dreamed of racing in Lucerne, Switzerland, because that was sort of the pinnacle beauty of international race courses. And it's such a well-known race to go to it's world cups three and it's almost always held in lucerne switzerland and in 2013 i made the eight and raced world cup three in lucerne and we won bronze my very first international race and we came third and i remember standing in the boat park and sort of looking at everyone packing up their boats when the races were done and having my medal on my neck and thinking like oh my gosh this is the moment that i've dreamed of when i started rowing and it's possible like i'm here now i'm in the mix I helped the boat win bronze. Maybe I can keep going. And so the day that they named the team for Rio was exciting because then it's official, but in rowing, it's not sort of like it's unknown. It's unknown. You have no idea what's happening. And then boom, you like, you know, because you sort of have to train in these lineups and test it, you kind of see what the team will potentially look like before it's actually announced publicly. And so I had a, a very good feeling that I was going to be named to the team in 2016, but didn't want to, you know, count on it because you never know anything can happen and one jinx it. And so when we finally got named and we actually went to Toronto and the official naming ceremony happened and they, you know, interview you and they take all the pictures and they give you the kit. Um, it was a pretty surreal moment because I remember thinking like, 
I, this is what I've always wanted. This is my dream. And now here I am standing in it. And it's sort of hard to take it all in when it's actually happening. And as far as Rio goes, I mean, we, we always have to ask anybody who was there, you know, there are a lot of stories that went around about uh, conditions and stuff like that. You know, what, what was your experience like, whether it just be Athletes Village or uh, just the event itself? I actually loved Rio, um, the actual like city. We went to Rio twice before we went to compete in 2016. Um, once for sort of a, a trip to get all of the touristy things out of our system. And so we, we went to Rio and we didn't row at all. Uh, we did some fun beach workouts, but then we, you know, went up and saw the Corcovado and toured around and tried oh, all nice. of the cool foods just so that when you do go back, you don't feel like you're missing out and you're not allowed to do any of those things. Um, and then the year before the Olympics, we went to actually row on the race course. And so by the time I went in 2016, Rio sort of felt like a second home. It was very comfortable. We'd been there before. We stayed in the same hotel. Um, and we were just very comfortable with what the surroundings were going to be like. And we were actually met with nothing but kindness. Everyone was so excited to meet the athletes and, you know, catch a glimpse of that official kit when you were walking down the street. And so I had a great time. My experience, as far as the event goes, was a bit disappointing. Um, in my situation, coming fifth felt like a failure. Uh, when we had meddled on every single international podium except the Olympics in 2016 and World Cup three a couple months beforehand. Um, and so that was only my second time in the entire quadrennial not standing on an international podium. And I think being fairly young and new to the sport, because we had always done so well, I almost came to expect it versus really internalizing and realizing that just because it's happened before doesn't mean it's guaranteed to happen again. You know, it's anybody's race on the day. You don't have to be the best crew. You just have to be the best crew on the day. And we weren't. And so coming out of Rio, I really felt sort of blindsided having not meddled. And looking back now, I, I know for me personally, like why we didn't, how my mental state was going in, but you know, I, it is why I came back to race for 2020. So the first thing that crossed my mind when we crossed the finish line in fifth was, well, I guess we got to try this again. Cause <laughs> I just really didn't feel like we lived up to what we were capable of. I didn't feel crossing the finish line. Like we had done everything that we could have done. So I loved Rio, the city, but the racing was, was tough. And I guess kind of a two-part question here, you know, when they put together a team of eight people, if you kind of look from one Olympus to the next, you might have three, maybe four people that go from one Olympics to the next. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess first for the real experience, did you kind of get the feeling that some of those who had come off of a silver medal in London that they had, you know, a similar type because your disappointments may be a little bit different. Your expectations are based on what you had going in, whereas their expectations may be like, Oh, we came from a silver. And I guess the second part being you got to be one of those handful of people who did get to come back four years later in Tokyo. You know, is, is it a harder process the second time around? Uh, do you have some advantage that you have been on the team before there's some consistency they want to keep maybe a veteran? I think Every Olympic quadrennial is different. You can take learnings from every single one, but you can't 
expect them to be the same or similar. And so I do think that going into the second one, I felt more confident in how I knew I was going to react to every situation that was there. Um, and just sort of dealing with being at the Olympics, because when you walk around and you see the rings everywhere, it can be very overwhelming, but you have to remember that it's literally just another two kilometer race. Like it's no different other than it has a bigger title. And so I think there's that benefit having been to an Olympic games before, um, those girls who were coming off the silver medal were those veterans for us in 2016. And I think that they helped us learn to expect the unexpected when it comes to showing up at the race course and getting your bearings and knowing that a team that could have come dead last at every single regatta before the Olympics could win at the Olympics because everything changes when the title changes as far as what people put into it. And so our biggest learning from them was just expect the unexpected and do what you know you're capable of. You can't expect to have this like enlightenment at the Olympics, you know, trust your training and go into it believing in yourself. And so I think that was my role in 2020 for the girls who hadn't raced in 2016, especially in the year of missing out on so much international racing because when the Olympics were delayed a year, we missed a whole year of international competition. And so when we started the, um, sat on the start line in Tokyo to race our heat, it was the first time that we had raced internationally in almost two years. Like I had no idea what some boats were going to be like speed wise because it had been so long. And so I think there's definitely and like a want to keep veterans around for that experience, but it's by no means guaranteed because everyone has to earn their seat. You could be a veteran and have that great experience that maybe somebody has out or sort of surpassed you in speed or technique that just because you're a veteran doesn't mean you should be able to keep your seat if you're slower than them. And so there's benefits, but, you know, everyone still has to, to fight for it. Well, Sydney mentioned a lot about how hearing from the 2016 team almost gave that inspiration a lot towards uh, Tokyo because of that disappointment that you're talking about. And I believe only three of you returned from Rio into Tokyo. So there were obviously wasn't a huge portion of the the team that was there but I mean I can imagine that the, the ones that are returning it's as we often hear on the show it's a disappointment that can be turned into a positive because you've got that extra fire of the potential that is there knowing what you're doing on the world stage and then putting it all together on a four-year cycle ultimately turned out to be a five-year cycle of course for Tokyo and then uh, using that to your advantage. Yeah I I'm happy to hear that Sydney thought it was inspirational because there were times when I sort of felt like I was maybe just harping or giving knowledge that nobody really wanted to hear at times. But <laughs> um, yeah, I think there were three returning Olympians from 2016 in the eight. Um, I guess four, if you want to include Kristen Kitt, she was a Paralympian. So she did have that sort of experience as well, uh, or Coxon. Um, and then there were a couple of other Olympians in other boats, but as far as the eight goes, yeah, there were three returning rowers. Um, and so I think that we tried to bring that fire and that, you know, we had something to prove feeling to everybody in the eight. Um, and I think it was exciting to see those moments where, you know, we'd have a really great row and the girls that hadn't competed in Tokyo were excited to be feeding off of that fire that we have, but also see that they were, making us better 
like they were giving just as much to this vote as the veterans were as well. Um, and so I think we did a really good job of it, especially in that extra year of using it to our advantage to really come together as an eight and build off of that feeling of, you know, we want to redefine excellence as a group on our own and just compare ourselves to ourselves so that we could come out the other side being proud of our performance, no matter where it landed us on the podium or if it didn't at all. Um, so it might be a controversial saying, but in my opinion, if the Olympics hadn't been delayed and we'd actually raced in 2020, I don't think we would have stood on the podium. Wow. I think that extra year actually made a huge difference for us. A new coach, a new attitude. We just did a full 180 and really used it to our advantage. And I'm, I guess I'm glad to hear that Sydney sort of had that fire from, from us as well. Another thing I'm curious about, uh, you know, what difference this makes because I guess we were, we talked about having debates on built this on the show just between us as the host, but a repetage got to be both a blessing and a curse. And really that's how you got your spot in the finals. I guess the blessing part of that might be, if you look at the times from one Olympics to the next, I mean, the fastest times are usually in the repetage. It's not even in the finals necessarily because everybody's pushing yeah. so hard, but mm -hmm. you have to go through that X race. You have to go through that uncertainty. Was it a blessing or a curse to have to go through that? For us, it was a blessing. I think it really just depends on how you look at it. And so for us, we said, you know what? We actually haven't had many opportunities to race together in this lineup as an eight because we haven't been able to race internationally in so long. Um, we actually came together as an eight pretty late before the Olympics too. So when we, you know, found out or you know, across the finish line, we're like, okay, we're going to the reps. We looked at it as an advantage and said, this is one more chance for us to really solidify our perfect race because we didn't feel like we had a stellar race in the heat. You know, we thought, Oh, we had a pretty good finish, but our start wasn't awesome. And so the, the rep is a chance to try it again. Um, and so we looked at it as an advantage. Um, the day of the reps was really windy. It was a wicked tailwind and we were sitting in the athletes lounge, getting ready to go out and, uh, race. And they have a TV broadcasting all the races that are currently happening. Probably wasn't a great idea for us to be watching this before out, we went out to race because it was so windy that returning medalists from 2016 were flipping on the Olympic race course. Wow. So when you see someone that you've seen win a silver medal at the previous Olympics tip over in their race, it is very alarming when you're about to go out and race an hour later. So we, uh, I think we remained calm. And again, we didn't have the best race of our lives in the, um, in the rep, but put together one more piece of what our perfect race would be. And so the rep gave us that chance to do it. Um, and of course we broke the world record, but we didn't set it because Romania sort of nipped us right at the finish line. Um, and I think one thing that was really special is when we crossed the finish line, obviously we were excited to have qualified for the final, but none of us were really thinking about that because we all wanted to set the world record. We were right there against Romania. And so we were all sort of disappointed. And I think one of the most powerful things that was said to me um, at that time was one of my teammates' fiancés said, let Romania have the world record. You're going after something that no one can take away from you. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of like a really cool moment for us to be like, okay, we had this chance in the rep. 
to perfect our race once again. Yes, we didn't set the world record, but that's fine. World records can be broken and they fall all the time. Whereas, you know, let's go after that goal because that title will never change. I want to get your feelings and thoughts on that goal shortly. But one thing I wanted to do in between this interview and when I spoke to Sydney, I mentioned to Sydney in her chat that it's rare, obviously, for a team to win a gold medal who don't win any of the heats of the repercharge, of course. And I I went through the history books to try and see if this had ever been done before. And if my calculation is correct, besides 1984, when I don't have the details of who won the heats and the repercharges, Canada is the first boat to ever win a gold without having won either a heat or a repercharge. Every other gold medalist either won, either won the heat or the repercharge. So uh, unless wow. USA did that in 1984, and I don't have the actual stats for what happened in Los Angeles, but uh, could be another thing to add there to the to the history books. That, uh, the, stacking up the records Stacking here. up the <laughs> yeah. history books there, Suzanne. That's quite cool. Yeah, I guess that just goes to show that you don't have to be the best crew. You just have to be the best crew on the day. <laughs> yeah, just be completely consistent. Which, I mean, I, I saw an interview with you where you had mentioned that towards the end of the race for the gold, you've got your coxswain yelling at you, you're Olympic gold medalist, you're going to be Olympic gold medalist, and kind of that feeling of like, well, we're still rowing here, come on, like hurry up, and, but then sort of <laughs> starting to starting to hit you. I mean, when you crossed that line, what was that feeling like? Uh, Sydney told a story about how basically she got told off by her parents because she was swearing and they could lip read her on TV. Uh, but oh, yeah. I don't know if that was a case of you. you. You had your parents calling you afterwards going, Suzanne, what's your language? But congratulations. But what was that feeling like crossing the for the gold? It was unbelievably surreal. I think I didn't want to believe it until we actually crossed the finish line. There's a couple of girls in the boat who've said like, oh, I knew from our first stroke, I knew going into the 500 meters to go. For me, I'm a bit of a pessimist by nature. And so until we had crossed that finish line and the times were listed, I wasn't going to believe that it was real. And so when we did and our coxswain kit stood up and started screaming at us, I, I, I was like almost in happy shock. Like I just couldn't actually believe it because there's a big screen that's at the finish line that only the rowers can see. You can't see it from the stands. Um, and in case there's a photo finish, it always lists the order in which you cross the finish line. And visualization is such an important part of our training. And so in, you know, every race, every time I've crossed that 2K mark, even in practice, I would look up and envision that's that big screen at the finish line. And even when we would train on international courses, every time we cross the finish line on a training day, I would just look up at the screen and I'd picture seeing one CAN because that would mean we had done it. And so when we crossed the finish line and I turned and looked and saw it in real life, I remember thinking, holy crap, like somebody pinched me. I have to be dreaming. Like this is what I've actually wanted for 18 years and it's happened. And in a really funny way to describe it, I sort of felt like the dog that chases a squirrel and finally catches it. And is like, <laughs> what now? <laughs> because it's just, you never imagine when you dream about something so big that you'd actually succeed and achieve that goal. And so I just remember looking at Kit and sort of being like, holy geez, like, I can't believe this is real. And my memories of it are so foggy that I think when I think back of it, I almost see it from the point of view from the camera of someone watching from the outside of the boat. But I can remember uh, Madison Bailey who sat in front of me turning around with just this like stark look of shock on her face and saying, is it real? Like, did we do that? And I was like, yes, like that is real. And then I 
remember falling back into Andrea's arms, the girl who sat behind me, um, because I tried to put my hands in the air to celebrate and I was utterly exhausted. And so just sort of collapsed at that moment, but she gave me a hug and, you know, it was just, it was wild. I, I, I still sort of get tingly thinking about that moment because I just really, it's so surreal that sometimes in a horrible way, I almost like forget that it's happened. I know I have a gold medal. I know I did it. That moment was just so unbelievably like a dream that it is so fleeting and it's hard to sort of keep in my mind. Tokyo being a unique Olympics with, you know, very few spectators. Rowing is one of these interesting, because I've been a spectator for rowing before. It's, it's a tough thing. You get to see somebody for, you know, about 10, 15 seconds, and then they move on. Um, there's one, one famous spectator I have to, I'm hoping was there, and that's uh, the Canadian chef de mission, Marnie McBean was a legend of Canadian rowing and basically became a legend of the Tokyo Olympics, even outside of Canada, because of her enthusiasm in the stands with her drum and everything, <laughs> this being her sport, please tell me that she was there and that you could hear her screaming from the stands. Cause that was, that was basically one of the biggest moments of the Olympics. One of the biggest moments in rowing in Canada in decades. Yeah. I'm honestly, it's all quite fuzzy. The only thing I really remember after standing on the, or sort of crossing the finish line and getting to the podium was sweating because it was 40 <laughs> degrees plus, And they made us wear these thick track pants and sweaters zipped all the way up. And I, all I can remember is trying not to pass out, but I very clearly can remember our pre-race talk with Marnie the night before our final. Oh wow! Uh, we met in the Olympic village um, at the remembrance tree, which is something they have in every Olympic village. And it's, um, sort of a, a, a tree that you can write the name of a, a loved one or a friend who has passed on a white ribbon and tie it to the tree so that you can bring them along on your Olympic journey with you. And earlier in the year, Marnie's um, partner in rowing, uh, Kathleen Heddle had passed away from cancer. And so Marnie met with us and told us stories from her Olympic finals where she had won gold. And Kathleen was this very quiet intensity rower. She brought that sort of calm strength to the boat. Whereas Marnie is very talkative and outwardly excited. Kathleen, you know, was very quiet, but had all of great strengths in a different way. And so Marnie shared stories about what it was like to race with Kathleen and stand on the podium with her and sort of what she brought to the race. Um, and so we took a moment to write her name on a, rib a ribbon and tie it on the tree and bring her and all the other rowing legends that came before us into our preparation for our race on the day of the final. Um, and going through 750 meters to go, um, Kristen Kitt, our coxswain, actually said, what would Kathleen Heddle do? Sort of going through that moment and really brought her into the race with us at that moment. So I think being able to have that moment with Marnie before our Olympic final was so special because Marnie has done so much in the world of rowing and is, is so successful and just to have her there to support us and tell us stories of Kathleen and, and their racing and then be able to, you know, do them proud the next day was, was pretty amazing. So I, I imagine Marnie was there. I'm, I'm sure she was, honestly, I don't remember anything but sweating that day. So <laughs> Another thing that uh, as far as legends of the sport that made it so exciting. If you ever get a chance 
tell Adam Creek he is the best commentator in the history of rowing because I mean he he helped make your guys win so so much better. But uh, when you have that, there's not spectators in Tokyo aside from maybe Marnie, you know, hundred meters away on a drum. Uh, mm-hmm. Your family, do they get to watch? Did you get a moment with your your parents calling you saying, "See, we told you so," you know, however many years ago? <laughs> What's your language? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, actually, it was. It, it was a little bit after the race because we had to go through a couple of, you know, we got our medals, which was really exciting and all went all through the media and then sort of derigged our boat. And once we sort of were able to separate into our own moment, um, I found a spot outside of our tent and, uh, FaceTimed my parents and, um, my whole family, we all sort of joined the call together and it was a pretty cool, moment to be able to share that with them and they all owned up to feeling nauseous and my sister was like I vomited this morning and I wasn't even the one racing I was so nervous and so it was really sweet to sort of hear how the community in Ontario sort of surrounded my family even though you know no one could come and watch everyone made it special for them there as well and so to be able to you know hold up my medal to my phone and be like ah like I did it this is so cool and then to hear their stories of how people came and rang the doorbell at like 11 o'clock at night when our race was done in Ontario and had champagne for them. And we're like celebrating. And especially too, my, um, my husband was in Victoria in our 500 square foot apartment at the time, watching it by himself, screaming at the TV. And so our landlords came upstairs with shots and when it was over and we're like, yeah, she did it. Like, this is so exciting. And so it was really special to be able to hear their stories of how they were celebrated as well. And talk to them after the race, because I mean, the first thing I thought when I crossed the finish line other after the shock had passed was, Oh my gosh, I can't wait to talk to my family and my husband. Like, this is so cool. I want to share this moment with them. So it was uh, sad that they couldn't be there to watch, but in a way it almost extended the celebrations because then, you know, we re-celebrated when I came home and every time I saw someone who wasn't there watching me, we got to, you know, reshare that moment. Um, so it was, it was pretty cool. Cause the medal's not just about me. I mean, it's about Canada as a whole. So getting to I, share that with everyone is really special. I thought that was quite common in Victoria that landlord just came up and brought you shots. I mean, maybe it was just a part of the complex <laughs> I lived in, but I mean, you know, I, just, I didn't win Olympic gold. Um, two quick things before we get to some questions to wrap it up. Obviously always need to know from our medalists on this show, Suzanne, uh, what do you do with the medal? I mean, I, one of the best photos I've seen is you got married and you're wearing an Olympic gold medal in your wedding dress. I don't think I've ever seen a photo like that before. That's a great photo. But uh, besides wearing it on your wedding day, what, what do you do with your medal? <laughs> yeah, it was my something new that day, actually. I didn't <laughs> wear it walking down the aisle, but I did hold it with oh, my birthday, So Come on. <laughs> I know, I know. I get told I should have just owned it the whole time. But um, it actually it, it lives in my purse. Ah. I don't know if I should really be sharing that publicly. But there you go, the, people who are robbing you next time. Steal a purse. The Olympic gold medal's in it. You never know. Um, but, yeah, it's a, some, it stayed there first because I went to an event and took it with me. And then I went to the grocery store a couple of days later and I hadn't taken it out yet. And somebody shockingly recognized me because that never happens. And I was like, oh, I have my medal with me. And it kind of became a thing. And the one time that I didn't have it with me, somebody asked to see it. And so... It, it sort of lives there so that the opportunity comes is available. If I, you know, share it with somebody and um, 
it's come in handy a couple of times to well, be able to make say, be honest, day. Suzanne, it's, it's there Part because two. when you're at the grocery store, you're like, oh, I forgot my wallet. But what's this? An Olympic gold medal? Oh, just, oh this whole thing? Oh, oh there it is. Oh, yes. Look at that. Oh, whoops, We're getting so are... many treats lately. Yeah. There it so, is. Oh, this old thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> brings me but, free uh, shots all the time. <laughs> no. But it is nice when, I mean, nobody recognizes rowers at least me like we're not sort of a huge sport and uh i was at the airport flying to ottawa to visit family and i was walking to the car of my family member who was picking me up and this um guy and his daughter came over and he was like are you a rower i was like yes and he's like oh my gosh you were in the eight i knew i recognized you can i take a picture with you with my daughter I was like, sure, (laughs) this never happens. And so I, of course, luckily had my medal with me and I let her wear it and seeing the smile on her face and her excitement is always what excites me. Fantastic. I I love hearing that. (laughs) I'm like an Olympic nut. I mean, we host a podcast on it. I met uh, Janine Hansen, who I guess preceded you by a few Uh, years. Um, I didn't recognize her. And again, I had to see, this is Janine Hansen. There's a silver medal before I'm like, oh yeah, the woman's aid. So yeah, if you're getting recognized, I'm going to applaud you. <laughs> You've done something great. You branded yourself well. <laughs> I don't know. I think that I just got lucky that I ran into a super fan. <laughs> Janine was actually my Olympic idol on the rowing team before I started oh, wow. training with the senior team. Yeah, she came to talk to my high school and was the one athlete um, in the national team who always said hi to me at the boathouse. And so Janine was special on my journey. Yeah. There you go. Colin, you're getting these six degrees of separation here. I like that. The the other question I wanted to quickly ask you about, I I love what you studied. Um, um, Canadian-American relations with a focus (laughs) Mm -hmm. on negative campaign television advertising. That sounds so fascinating, Suzanne. Like that legitimately sounds like that would have been an incredibly fun degree to put together. I need a copy of your thesis. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I loved it. It was really fun. I think having gone to university in the States and then coming back and studying it from the outside, um, it was a really cool perspective to be able to, to have that opportunity. Um, and I mean, growing up in Florida and then going to university in the States, I saw campaign ads all the time on TV. Um, and so it was really cool to go back and watch all of them since I think I started on my thesis on 1952 um, all the way through to the end of Obama's campaign and um, watched every campaign ad that had been archived um, on there ones that I could even find on the internet and the sort of more like YouTube and more recent years. Um, But I, I found it really entertaining. Absolutely loved it. Um, Politics has always really fascinated me sort of being on the inside in the States and then living in Canada. It was, it was cool. I studied in my undergrad too, um, American government. And so it was a sort of natural next step for me, but I loved it. I was just going to say, I mean, I didn't live in Canada long enough to see any election campaign. So if you're focusing on America, I can't imagine a negative Canadian ad. What would be like, Oh, Justin Trudeau sucks, but sorry. Eh? He's also a nice guy. Like I don't, I don't, that's how I imagine a Canadian negative campaign ad. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was really interesting. Some of the stuff I found um, where they were almost like mirroring of some ads. And so some of the campaign ads that Obama had in his early campaign were almost reflected in some of um, Harper's campaign ads. So it was really interesting to watch like a couple of years later, 
oh, there's they're very similar sort of style, almost the same imagery sort of similarity there. And so there was, there's definitely a pattern of what you do in negative campaign ads, but every once in a while there was almost like too similar. And so I know there were campaign managers that overlapped and everything, but it was just, I, Canadians are definitely, you know, stereotypically nice by nature, but there, there's some it's ads where we just don't hold back. It's a lie. <laughs> yeah, well, I, we just I, I know it's yeah. a lie. You put it on for the rest of the world. It's, you know, like all Australians know about Trudeau. It's like, oh, he's good looking. has a nice ass. When you live there, you know, there's more to him than just that. So I'm just, <laughs> we're not getting into Our politics and all that stuff. stronger. Of it fools everybody. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then you watch hockey and you're like, holy crap, these guys are angry. Uh, Suzanne, <laughs> we wrap up with a bunch of fun get to know you questions. Now, I sort of mentioned to you off air, you might have answered these because these are a questionnaire that they gave to you before Rio and also athletes before Pyeongchang. Now, if you did fill this form in, it didn't get published on the Team Canada website. So obviously you would have done a lot of media in the lead up to both games, but do you ever remember filling in a form that kind of asked you random questions and asked you to draw as well? Like it asked you to like draw pictures of yourself and things like that. Do you remember doing something like that? I, I don't remember doing something like that, but Perfect. honestly, I filled out a lot of forms, so no memory, but maybe it'll become familiar as we go. <laughs> maybe. Well, the drawing aspect is optional. If you if you feel inclined and, and want to do some homework, you can draw some things and send it in. So there is draw a picture of yourself, draw a picture of a Canadian animal. What would the coolest Olympic what? medal look like? random bits and pieces there uh so it's entirely up to you it's not compulsory here you're not going to fail if you don't do this but i'll start off with the first question if you could choose any olympic host city where would it be olympic host city hmm. Ooh, i don't know i think it'd always be it'd be cool to compete on home turf canadian olympics are usually winter olympics so i don't know if it would ever happen, but I would love to compete on Canadian soil. Uh, Toronto has bid, obviously, for it. I'm surprised they've never gotten it. And we've had a few guests recently who have sold Vancouver as a summer city as well. Vancouver could handle mm. a summer Olympics as well. So, yeah, I mean, Vancouver 2030 looks like it might happen, but we, we want to have a, a summer Olympics. been too long since 76. Yeah. Make it happen, Canada. Come on. It's 30 degrees out here today, so, I mean, it definitely gets warm. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, this next question, I'm just going to let you know, our most famous answer ever came from this, and it is now quoted in every single episode. So if you can <laughs> top it, you, you, you will forever be memorialized here. Um, the weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you was? Oh. Um, pretend that you're either scooping ice cream or digging someone's grave. <laughs> that, that's close wow that's a contender i think Jeez, yeah, it uh, was on i i don't do a very good job of keeping shape above the water so when you come out at the finish of the stroke your blade goes flat and there's supposed to be a good amount of distance between it and the water and i like to drag my blade a little bit too much and so he's like take your hands and just you know dig someone's grave or scoop the ice cream before you get back up to the catch of the rowing stroke. So you realize that was a bit morbid. I'll go for the lighter know. one there. Yeah. Well, that day I didn't really like him. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that commentators don't use that. Or maybe they do, but I haven't heard it because one of the most confusing things I ever had while watching rowing was when they turn around at one point and go, oh, they're hitting a lot of crabs out there. 
And I, I'm watching this going, fuck, like Tokyo, what, what's with the crabs? Like, are this, yeah. why are they not clearing them off the course? This sounds terrible. Like, dangerous crabs. It should really be a legend. Yeah, there should be like a little thing that comes up. Crab, nothing to worry about, random role yeah. viewer. Like, it's like, oh, okay then. Um, what is your favourite workout? Um, I'm a, a C6 or sort of steady state cardiovascular beast. And so I really like sort of the long, slow and steady ones, but I know that's not what's good for me. So <laughs> I would have to say that the one that I get the most benefit out of is probably uh, 20 by 500 meters with equal rest. Um, so it's a brutal workout. We do it on the water in the eight um, and it's at max speed. So not even like race pace. It's like all out sprint as hard as you can go fly wow. and die, fizzle, dizzle. And so it's essentially 90 seconds on, 90 seconds off 20 times. And it's Jeez. brutal. Fizzle, dizzle. That that's you, my new favorite that, phrase from this episode. <laughs> fizzle, dizzle. I think that's, that's what your sister was doing. That's why she was throwing up before watching you. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, if you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? Ooh, probably Thomas Jefferson. Ooh. Fancy. Mm -hmm. I like Yeah, that. he was uh, the sort of face of University of Virginia. And when I was in third grade, we had to, uh, we sort of ran our own campaigns and had to pretend to be a president. And coincidentally, I was Thomas Jefferson. There you go. So, his wow. campaign ads were spectacular too. <laughs> <laughs> Not negative at all. That man was a no. saint. <laughs> but he was so ahead of the time. They had TV back then. He was the only one. It was crazy. Um, yeah, I'd love speaking, to hear all of his dramatic stories. So yeah, I like the I like these answers when uh, you sort of you get someone like that. That's a, that's a good answer. Uh, at lunch, I mean, what is your favorite sandwich? Maybe you could have this sandwich with Mr. Jefferson. I love grilled cheese. I could live off cheese and peanut butter, as weird as that sounds. Not together, but those are my two, like, top foods. So grilled Don't, cheese for sure. Suzanne, I have cheese and peanut butter together. It's amazing. If you haven't tried it, please do. It's it's actually really good. So I'll own that. It's great. <laughs> I'll have to give it a try. Uh, the next one is a drawing one, which I'll just say, draw a picture of a Canadian animal. If you feel the need to, you can compete. Um, but I'll go on to another question here. If I could have any superpower, it would be? Teleportation. <laughs> we I get that one quite often. Tele I, I would say teleportation and flight are probably the two most popular answers, aren't they? It's definitely between that, but then also potentially being invisible. Mm, would be kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Like being able yep. to sort of be that fly on the wall. Yeah. I can imagine teleportation is going to come in the most handy in your sport too. I mean, yeah. zero effort, just straight to the finish line. <laughs> Starting going hey. goes off, boom. That beats the world record by Romania. Screw it, Romania. Yeah, we did this in point five of a second. <laughs> yeah, beat that. <laughs> Try doing that. I'm also going to go run the 100 metres in less than a second as well. Screw you, Usain Bolt. This is what I'm going to do, you know. Andre de Grasse, you're not fast. Look how fast I can run. Um, Win all the, best, the medals. Exactly. Uh, the best candy in the world is? Mm, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Nice. Ooh. Chocolate you know peanut butter. I, I, I don't know if you tried this or not. I, I tried it about a year ago and I haven't seen it since. And my wife found it in the store yesterday. It's it's a Reese's peanut butter cup that has like potato chips in it. It's like crushed potato chips. Have you tried that? No. I've seen the one that has oh. Reese's pieces in it, but not the potato chips. Ooh. That one's good too. But the potato chip one, amazing. It's it's rare, but still in some stores. If you find if I find it, I will send it to you. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the Pringles that are like peanut butter cup coated. But oh. it was in it was in 
either Europe, I think it was in Europe. So I, I haven't looked for them, but all the good stuff's over there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. Um, I'm curious about your answer to this one. Cause uh, usually we have Canadians who are going to pick their, uh, their home city, but you growing up in Florida, maybe it's different. Um, as a kid, what was your favorite sports team? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Ooh. Oh, you went, you were scaring mm-hmm. me with where you were ending that. I was going to say Tampa. Uh, I'm, but, I'm, uh, a, I'm a lightning fan and Ben's not happy with me for it. <laughs> no, oh, I, I, I am too, but uh, <laughs> Thank well, you. this has been a good interview. I'm going to go. Um, you two can finish this up. Um, as a Calgary Flames fan, we don't get over 2004. So it's, um, uh, you know, we're, we're salty. Yeah. Maybe it's just me. Mm. Uh, your favorite sports movie is. Mm, I don't know. I don't watch a ton of movies, embarrassingly enough. Um, I honestly don't know if I have an answer to that. There's no rowing movies that I can think of, is there? I don't think. Oh, Boy in Blue is a rowing movie. It's a Nicolas Cage movie from a while ago. It's before he got his teeth fixed. I know. Hang on, (laughs) Nicolas Cage in a rowing movie? How is this a thing we don't know about? It's it's so bad. It's amazing. Nicolas Cage. That's that's the the motif all the time with him. So it's a Boy in Blue. It's called Boy in Blue, and it's about Ned Hansen, who's the first Canadian rower to row on a sliding seat in rowing. Wow. So it's actually cool. It's a bit of like a historical, like based on a true story, but it's really bad. It's before he gets his teeth <laughs> fixed, and the acting is so yeah, worth a so worth a good laugh if you want to watch a it. Canadian, t- a Canadian, like wow, Colin Oz Network. <laughs> that's what we're doing next. We're doing yes. Boy in Blue, right? We're finding this movie, <laughs> blowing our minds. Today. This is incredible. <laughs> Uh, I believe this is the last question then. So if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Switzerland. I just love it. Rowing there? Yeah, it's beautiful rowing. The Rotsi is where we row, which is the Lake of Gods. Um, And it's it's just stunning. The sort of view when you're actually on the race course, it's this little probably 2,000 meters plus like 100 meters stretch. And at the start line um, up one side, are these like mountains to where this train goes along and there's cows with their little cowbells on. And the other side is a little swimming beach. Um, and at the finish line, there's just these beautiful snow covered mountains. So it's, Amazing. it's absolutely gorgeous. And the water is crystal clear. Is it, is it cow? Do the cows get their bells like skiing? Do you kind of get to the end and they just, you know, do the cowbells like an <laughs> Alpine skiing race or something? <laughs> it, it is funny actually, because at the start, it's so quiet. The only thing you can hear are the cowbells before the <laughs> buzzer goes off. Yeah. It's quite unique. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. So then before we let you go, uh, social media, anywhere people can follow you in the, in the lead up to, to Paris, if that's sort of next steps for you, uh, can people stay up to date with the journey? Um, yeah, I am on Instagram. I'm, I think Suze.gry, Suze. So it's just Suzanne Granger, which is my maiden name. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not a huge poster. I just had uh, a little baby girl. And so Congratulations. that's sort of going to, thank you. <clears throat> That'll likely take over my content for the time being. Um, <laughs> the team's going to race world champs uh, in a couple of weeks. And so I might post some nostalgic rowing photos at that point because I'm not, uh, I think I'm, I'm good. I'm retired, but. Yeah, so if you want to follow me and see some cute baby action, Instagram Do is the way to go. Well, it's been a busy year then for you, obviously. Babies, marriage, Olympic gold medals. I mean, gosh, geez. We bought a house. All. I literally just sprinted through every life milestone. 
Wow. Okay, yeah. then. Congratulations. And it's bigger than 500 square feet, I can tell from this yeah. view. <laughs> yeah, do you get shots Luckily from the neighbours? <laughs> they, they're coming over. Now, baby time. Shots. Come on. It's very friendly in Victoria. They're, just, they're drunk as well. It's all the time. I, I, it's, it's crazy. Uh, pleasure to have you on, Suzanne. Such a, a fun ride learning about your journey and everything and, and sort of the gold medal win and everything that came before that. So we really... Do appreciate your time here on the show. And honestly, best thing I got out of this interview, I'm sorry, is that there's a Nicolas Cage rowing movie. So I know what I'm doing for the next couple hours. Yeah, it's hilarious. Love it. And a massive thanks to Suzanne there. I, I, I need to go. Boy in blue. Had you heard of this before? Never. And, and you know what's crazy? I... If people are just listening to us right now, that they need to go watch the YouTube just to see our expression. I can't wait to go back and watch our expressions when she said Nicolas Cage in a rowing movie because it blew both of our minds, like completely blew our minds. And we'll be covering this at some point on one of our podcasts. I'm seeing this. It's an, This is before I was born. A 1986 Canadian drama film directed <sighs> by Charles Jarrett starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, it was pre- written by Douglas. I said David Bowie. I got even more excited there. Written by Douglas <laughs> Bowie. Uh, so it says here, the drama follows Ned Hanlon, who is known to be a Canadian competitive rowing champion. Ned Hanlon is adopted by a gambler named Bill, who promotes the boy <laughs> on the sculling circuit for his own monetary gain. As a young man, Ned is very trouble prone, but does not lack the fierce determination needed in his attempt to become a formidable athlete. In his attempt, a businessman named Knox assumes control of Hanlon's career, who backs Ned for his own personal gain and discards him when he is no longer in sight. Through Knox, Ned meets and falls for the niece of the businessman, Margaret, played by Cynthia Dale. Hanlon's professional success is capped by his marriage to Margaret. Oh, spoiler. Um, wow. Okay. I'm on board here. Okay. Um, we, we do have on the Oz Network, which you can listen to, uh, a Canada versus Australia month coming. I think we may have just filled half of our Canadian quota for that month. We did. It was nominated for three Genie Awards, Colin, and Nicolas Cage <laughs> didn't get one of them. So, ah, oh, ripped off. Was it Canadian not, enough? <laughs> not Canadian. <laughs> you know, Nicolas Cage in Canadian movies? Like, I mean, this is a thing, right? Like, you've talked about uh, big stars coming to Canada and doing this. <laughs> but, um, wow, this is um, this is amazing here. So, yeah, coming soon to uh, the Oz Network. And seriously, one of the best things I've ever heard in an interview. But great chat there with Suzanne. And you mentioned the YouTube. If you are listening to this and want to see the video version, you can check out the YouTube uh, clip version interview. It's not a clip, Ben. It's a whole interview. Uh, Search for Off the Podium on YouTube and all the social media channels as well, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the podcast channels as well. Subscribe. Never miss an episode. It's great. And plenty to come. And plenty of great Stars and Olympians and everything. Colin, do you want me to spoil some for you? Because you're not oh. joining me for any. You're just going back to being lazy. So I'll, I'll carry <laughs> the workload. It's fine. Spoil Tell me about all the things I'm going to be missing out at recording at 3 well, a.m. <laughs> you're missing out on fucking moguls next episode, mate. Because um, oh. we've, we've got a Aussie, a mogul skier. It's not Dale Begg-Smith, sadly. But uh, we're going back to the great sport of moguls. We are speaking to an athlete in a couple of episodes who has been referred to as the Brad Pitt of his sport, which, uh, you know, uh, I feel like that's a, a big title to have. So we'll be looking forward to learning how that helps him in his Olympic career. Uh, we'll be talking speed skating again, which is exciting. Ice hockey. We're going back. I'm slapping mm. things because that's exciting. And our very first ever soccer athlete, football athlete, which uh, obviously is a big deal, Colin Hilding, because it's a huge deal. we love kicking goals. 
on this show and this person yes. does that for a living. So that kind of works. And also <laughs> we're only a few episodes away from another clip show, which as we celebrate our 300th episode, it's always great to get the clip shows out and listen it's to all the funny It's another clip show. <laughs> Has it come to that? Another clip show. <laughs> it's a winner. Um, so we will be checking that out. Uh, who are you most excited for there, Colin, out of those teasers that I've given you? I mean, moguls, obviously, but I mean, hockey, oh, you can never go wrong with hockey. Exactly. That is the motto of this show. You can never go and wrong with hockey. And ice hockey. Let me, let me say it. Let me ice. say it the way that it can be understood. Ice hockey. Ice. Not, not field, ice. Uh, yeah. That's... Field hockey is the one that's not on a field, but the ice has melted because there's water still. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> the differences between. That's how the you two. describe field hockey in Canada. Yes, it's kind of like ER, but without <laughs> <Yes>. the ice. <laughs> yeah, the, the jokes are not making sense if you don't listen to our other shows. Uh, big thanks again to Suzanne for her time. Thanks to you, Colin. I appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate my time too. Always a shout-out to the Birmingham Bull. And until next time, my name is Ben. This has been Off the Podium. Go left and fizzle-dizzle! My level